Lesson 1. Do not obey in advance. Lesson 2. Defend institutions. Lesson 3. Beware the one-party state. At such moments, there is a voice inside which speaks and says, this is the real me. By afternoon, the silence was deafening. Day one, we're ready to go, says a former senior White House official. Day two, it was, maybe they'll call us? Teams were going around. Have you heard from them? Recalls another staffer who had prepared for the transition. Have you gotten anything? I haven't got anything. When the suffering was so intense, he only wished for the one great relief to all human pain. And it was absolutely clear from Dole's face that he wouldn't have known Ben Blas if he'd run over him with his Lincoln town car. Uh, and he said, without uh, even a pause, he said, how is old Ben? <laughs> anyway. You may be asking yourself, what exactly was that mishmash of audio consciousness that just streamed through my head? Here to answer that question, I'm David Thornburg, President and CEO of the Committee of 70, and I'm here with my co-host, friend, and colleague, Chris Satulo at Kelly Writers House on the Penn campus, and this is 20 by 70. Chris, welcome. Thanks, David, and a uh, happy and well-read holiday to you, yours, and all of our listeners out there. Yes, which gets us to the crux of the matter, which is what you heard was a couple of clips from some of Chris and my favorite reads of 2018. And as we did last year, you'll recall, this is our holiday edition of uh, books that you need to read and gift or re-gift to your friends, (laughs) loved ones, and colleagues. And you don't have a whole lot of time left, although... In our version of Christmas giving, it could span the new year. So we give you special dispensation on that. And let me jump in, David, and make it clear. We're talking about nonfiction books, not fiction, though we love novels. Um, this is the Committee of 70s podcast. We are policy wonks, so this is about history and wonkery. That's right. Although a quick plug for uh, <laughs> the family, because these things are important. My daughter Blair is publishing her second young adult novel called Ordinary Girls that is coming out this spring. So uh, stay tuned for that. We'll do probably a whole special podcast on Ordinary Girls itself. That is a uh, wonderful combination of paternal love and complete shamelessness, David. (laughs) I'm very proud of you. If not complete shamelessness, then what? Chris, let's start with you. Uh, What's your first pick for 2018? Well, it would be a book uh, simply titled Grant by Ron Chernow. Um, I will warn you right now, it is a very long book if you're thinking of buying it or giving it. We specialize in thick books here. Um, That's pretty much what Ron Chernow does. He writes long and but uh, really entertainingly written biographies of major American characters. And this one is Ulysses S. Grant, um, the commanding general of the Union Army during the Civil War, and importantly, a president of the United States. So I am a longtime uh, Civil War nerd, so um, my daughter got me the book for Christmas last year. Uh, and uh, so I read the stuff about, um, you know, his somewhat uh, misspent younger years, uh, his uh Tough career in the U.S. Army, his service in the Mexican War, drinking problem, sort of getting cashiered, struggles as a businessman, and then lo and behold, the Civil War comes along and very swiftly. In fact, when you think about it, with absolute dizzying swiftness, he goes from a non-entity serving out um, 
in the Western theater to basically the person who saves the Union. Uh, that's all pretty familiar to me or any Civil War um, buff, and it's well told, um, but that's not really why I'm bringing this book up. Uh, Ulysses Grant was also the president of the United States who succeeded Andrew Johnson. Um, and so he essentially was the president during the period we now call Reconstruction. And um, the usual book on Ulysses S. Grant, he's a terrible president. There was a lot of corruption and, you know, so terribly sad he was a good general, terrible president. But Chernow makes a very different case that, for me, resonates very much with these times. Um, he makes the case that, A, um, the Civil War didn't really end at Appomattox when Robert E. Lee surrendered his sword um, to Ulysses S. Grant. It continued in a different way, essentially as guerrilla warfare across the South, or what in this day and age, uh, in a term that was unknown to the 19th century, would be called domestic terrorism. Essentially, a lot of Confederate soldiers went home and said, um, we're not just taking this. We're not taking the freedom of African-Americans. We're certainly not um, going to sit here and accept that they can be elected to office in our states. And what followed was, A, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, the original Ku Klux Klan, and a rampage of outright murder and terror, including you know, locking, uh, uh, basically um, laying siege to state government offices in which um, both white and African-American office holders were, and basically killing people as they came out. I mean, the, the stuff that went on in those years, um, I had, even though I'd studied the period a lot, I didn't know how bad it was. And I also did not know how courageous and effective Grant and two of his attorney generals were in basically using a little bit of military force, but a lot of um, old-fashioned prosecution of, of crime to shut down the Ku Klux Klan and limit the damage and try to protect the rights of African Americans. So, so this is a little bit of a restoration in your head of Grant's legacy and right. leadership. But even more importantly, it speaks to our time now yeah. because, um, you know, uh, there has been forever or for a long time a view of the Civil War that basically treats um, – the Confederate side of the equation is a noble lost cause, and you know essentially rewrites history so that the war was around slavery wasn't about slavery, and uh, that the South, uh, the South's history since the war has not been often a tale pockmarked and stained by uh, racist violence. Yeah. Uh, it has been stained by racist violence since the day Lee surrendered, and Grant fought nobly against that. Um, and had some success. And essentially, it was only until Grant served his two terms and decided not to run again in order to win um, what was essentially the other tied election in American history, not just 2000, but 1876, to um, ensure the election of Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, um, war-weary Northern Republicans, and Republicans were the party of Lincoln and Grant, basically said to the South, you know what? We will sell the former slaves, our new African-American citizens, down the river. We'll end Reconstruction, and we'll let you take back over the South. Just let us have our Republican president. Hmm. Um, this is the tale that Chernow's book tells. Even though I know a little bit of it, I didn't know it anywhere near as in the detail he tells. And the resonance for the arguments we're having right today in our country 
in the Trump administration was amazing. And it also, uh, I was not aware of how much pertinent history people making arguments today in the political context uh, just don't know that history. Yeah. Often, as our uh, speaker at last year's luncheon, John Meacham, reminds us, understanding the fine grain of history uh, in this country and elsewhere, in particular, the, the, the challenges and adversity and, and crises that we've experienced uh, gives useful context for stuff that we're going through. Right. Today. So the title of the book is Grant by Ron Chernow, C-H-E-R-N-O-W. If you buy it, be willing to settle in for a long period. It's about a thousand pages. <laughs> well, we're long. we're heading into January and February, so so be it. All right, picking up on that that theme of presidential leadership, I'm going to toss one on the pile, which is Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, which is a little bit of a of a kind of a compendium of her observations about a set of presidents that she's covered really well, each in their own thick books: uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt. Lyndon Johnson and Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, Team exactly. Of rivals. Great yep. Book. Yep. And she does. Uh, it's a it's a nice compact book. Uh, it lends itself. I used it actually in teaching a leadership course at, at Temple. So maybe the more than some of her longer books, it sort of abstracts some of the principles of leadership that each of these uh, folks exhibited. Um, <clears throat> but she she also does a, a really effective job of telling their origin stories. Um, and and extracting a useful observation about uh, presidential leadership from that, and the the useful observation is this, and you know much has been written about what what characteristics make for effective leaders and so forth and so on. She plunks for humility, um, and by humility she's careful to say that that's not being humble. Humility is is actually coming face-to-face early on with your own limitations and uh, rising above them and finding a way to, uh, to build your internal uh, a character to compensate for some of the, the weaknesses that you've uh, encountered uh, usually early in your life. So just as a, for instance, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who, you know, popular uh, in our popular mind is a vigorous, robust, outdoors uh, outdoorsy figure, in fact, suffered from uh, terrible asthma when he was a kid, wasn't sure he was going to live, but literally from that determined that he was going to build himself up physically and lifted weights and ran and hunted and all that sort of stuff that we've come to know about him. The other thing about Teddy uh, Roosevelt early on when he was elected to the General Assembly in uh, New York, uh, a little while after that, on the same day, both his wife died as a result of childbirth and his mother died in the, on the same day in the same house. So if you can imagine that at the age of he was probably in his mid-20s, uh, imagine being confronted with that, that, that horrible uh, series of uh, the, the, those, those two horrible deaths. It's, you know, she paints the, this uh, picture of the adversity that, that Teddy Roosevelt encountered both physically and in terms of this, uh, this great loss. And it was uh, because of that that he was able to – because he was able to rise to that occasion and, and sort of rebuild himself, it gave him the, the strength of character to become the leader that he did. So that's the in-depth story. Imagine also uh, Franklin Roosevelt and his uh, polio. 
uh, again, at a fairly early age uh, that totally changed his life. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, who grew up in literally dirt poor surroundings um, in the hill country of Texas. And if you want to read more about that, read Robert Carer's uh, masterful uh, uh, piece, uh, Path to Power, I think, is the first book now, in that Speaking of long. Series. Yeah, right. <laughs> then you're really settling in yeah. for the, a long night. Um, and then uh, Abraham Lincoln, of course, like Lincoln uh, or like Johnson, grew up in in dirt poor uh, surroundings. Um, so th- that's the that's the blanket uh, around the book. This again, concentrating on this sense of humility and and how humility is a is a response to your own. Uh, shortcomings and and rebuilding uh, around those shortcomings. So I'm a big fan of hers, uh, and this is a pretty easy read. If you want, even if you want a taste of uh, Doris's books, uh, I, it's a good place to start. So let me ask you a question, um, David. Um, and avoiding um, getting into any discussion of the current occupant of the White House, but you know her tales of presidential leadership. Did they lead you to any thoughts about what 21st century presidential leadership ought to look like and what maybe as we survey the uh, rather huge field of potential Democratic candidates, yeah. what people might want to look for. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll quote another historian, uh, David McCullough, uh, who I quoted at our annual luncheon this year, who said in his, in his you know, lifelong study of history, his conclusion is that character is everything. And character is uh, a complicated, complex, very rich word, but a lot of it has to do with your ability to respond to adversity uh, and and a sense of integrity. Uh, And I think a lot of these themes clearly emerged in the wonderful memorial service to George H.W. Bush a a few weeks back. So, um, and I've decided for myself that, you know, I'm a character voter. I'll vote on character uh, because partly we don't really know the challenges that a president or a, a public leader is going to confront. So um, I'll vote for uh, the uh, candidate of character. Actually, tying into uh, another person who spoke at uh, Committee of 70 luncheons, um, John Meacham, last year also a student of presidential leadership, uh, and he wrote a book about George H.W. Bush and gave a eulogy at the funeral. But he also, in the same way you you mentioned Doris Kearns Goodwin doing, emphasize the importance of humility, mm-hmm. particularly in terms of George W. Bush, yeah. that kind of sense of, I don't know everything, but I'm here to serve. That's right. Um, yep. So yep. that seems to be a through line of some of the presidents who end up being remembered uh, with the greatest admiration. Yeah. All right, over to you. What's what's number two on Right, your list? well, in the same vein of learning from history, I want to bring up a book that isn't exactly new. I think it was published in 2017. Um, I just reread it um, as kind of a balm for the times. It's a book called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, and it's by a Yale historian named Timothy Snyder. Um, and as an historian, and this is very much to the point of the book, Uh, One of Snyder's scholarly focuses is the rise of uh, fascist Germany and the Holocaust. Um, But what he does is not uh, a bunch of pat uh, analogies or, you know, essentially name-calling of current political figures with terms that relate to um, the rise of Hitler, but a really in-depth study of what actually happened in the Weimar Republic um, and afterwards that enabled the rise of the Nazis in Germany and the fascists in Italy. 
And I just want to read the first line of the book. History does not repeat, but it does instruct. (laughs) And sort of within that balance, the whole book um, lies, essentially saying, this is what really happened back there. Um, And when it was happening, no one or very few people in Germany, in Europe, in Britain, in the United States foresaw how far and how awfully it would go. Um, And a lot of the things that they did that, in retrospect, enabled the rise of Hitler and Mussolini seemed logical, Mm -hmm. seemed to make sense. And there was also – there were always some people raising the alarm, and a lot of them were dismissed as hysterical, as alarmists. And to go back and read what some of the sort of wise hands were saying, trying to calm people down, you know, nothing to see here, not a big problem, looks pathetically short-sighted with the hindsight of history. That said, he also says, the politics of inevitability is a self-induced intellectual coma. So he's saying there's nothing inevitable about a slide into authoritarian tyranny either. There are ways to resist it. And um, he cites examples from the fall of the Iron Curtain, uh, people like Lech Walesa and uh, Vaclav Hamel, and the things that they and other people did that um, seemed small and futile at the time but actually led to the collapse of um, the Soviet tyranny over Eastern Europe. So the point is, it's not hopeless, but it's also um, not safe to say it's somebody else's problem. And in the end, Snyder gives 20 very concrete things that people can do um, just by themselves or with other people that based on his study of the history and the rise of authoritarianism and then the collapse of authoritarian regimes in the 20th century either can help stem authoritarianism or undermine it when it's in place. And sometimes it's just simple things like refusing to... Um, repeat and parrot the slogans of authoritarianism. So we shouldn't spend more time on social media? Uh, No, he's, you know, okay, he's a Yale professor, so take this with whatever amount of salt you want. He is very emphatic that one of the greatest ways of resisting authoritarianism is reading books. But basically, because what does the authoritarian try to do? He tries to create one uniform reality that everybody has to live inside and accept, right? And one of the ways of undermining that is to think for yourself, and the best way to think for yourself is to read, right? So reading is a big thing. Um, Not withdrawing to a purely private life, being engaged with civic organizations, just being a Boy Scout, you know, troop master, he says, is a way to create the bond, the civic bonds that maintain democracy and resist authoritarianism. So it's not like your choices are merely rail against what's going on and, you know, march in the streets, although he's a big fan of marching in the streets, or just sort of give up and say whatever happens, happens. There are any number of things you can do in your daily life, Timothy Snyder says, that can make a real difference in how history turns out. He doesn't quote this, but throughout reading the book as a, you know, Philadelphian, I constantly thought of the story, whether apocryphal or not, of of Benjamin Franklin coming out of Independence Hall after they'd you know, finished the Constitution in secret. And a woman asked him, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? And he says, a republic, if you can keep it. Right. And it is still an open question whether we're going to keep it. 
But Snyder reminds us not only of that, but there are things we can do every day as individual citizens to make sure the republic yeah. is preserved. Sounds like a great book. And, uh, and one, it's in a slim volume. It's all of 118 pages. Yeah. You can easily read it in one sitting. Nice. All but right. it, it's unforgettable. It's going to be on my list. All right. Let me um, uh, throw in one more and then a special extra bonus round from the back uh, catalog. Um, the 2018 pick, another pick on my list, is uh, a book by Michael Lewis of Moneyball fame. Um, and this book is called The Fifth Risk. One reviewer pointed out that Michael, Michael Lewis has built a career as a student of risk. He, he understands uh, the sort of dynamics of, of risk and placing bets and, and uh, how and the context around that. So the fifth risk, uh, this book, is written about a subject which makes most folks' eyes glaze over, which is the workings of government, particularly the federal government. And in, in, in the way in which he, uh, the style in which he has mastered, uh, Lewis goes inside significant federal bureaucracies and uh, helps you understand the people who power those government agencies, like uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic uh, and Aeroatmospheric uh, NOAA, <laughs> that forecasts the weather, mm-hmm. um, and has and the National Weather Service. And if you you think about that in the context of risk, getting better and better at at forecasting weather events in these tumultuous times is actually a hugely significant thing that, that plays out, uh, 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 affects economies and clearly disaster preparedness and so forth and so on. He also takes another tour into uh, the folks in the Department of Energy who manage our stockpile of nuclear wastes, which if we don't do that carefully, literally, uh, I mean, you don't, want, you don't want to think of the consequences. And the fifth risk, you may ask, he goes through. He this comes from a conversation with one of these uh, sort of um, uh, loyal, uh, competent bureaucrats, uh, and there are four different risks uh, that this person points out. But the fifth one, he says, uh, is maybe the most important: is that is that we may lose the ability to to manage uh, risk in in government; that we may not. We may no longer have the competence or the capacity uh, to do that. And this is in the context, let's just say, of a presidential administration that seems to run uh, roughshod over, uh, you know, the, the so-called deep state and the, the, the competence of bureaucrats that's built up over time. So what he's pointing out is that if we don't pay attention to uh, the the recruitment and the training and the uh, the management uh, of the men and women who make government work, we may be exposing ourselves to an unprecedented level of, of risk. So it's a little bit of a, uh, there's a little bit of an ominous tone to it, uh, but there's also like a, a hopeful quality because uh, you you come to understand something about these remarkable people who have sometimes given up lucrative private careers and invested their lives and their talents into making government work. So uh, I think, again, a useful um, uh, tome for the times. You, you mentioned Noah at the start. One of my daughter's closest friends from college works for Noah. Yeah. And I can't even explain to you exactly what he does, but it involves a lot of time at sea. And speaking of risk, uh, to find out things about what, what are happening to ocean currents and yeah. ocean temperatures, they go out in some pretty hairy 
places, and he has had some really risky moments yeah. where his life has been um, somewhat in danger, and he's been injured trying to get information that will help other people predict uh, major weather events and save people who live in the path sure. of those events. And, um, you know, it's the holidays. We're not trying to get all that political, but, I mean, I do feel strong. I mean, I was been a journalist for a long time, covered a lot of people in government. And, you know, sometimes government is that, you know, rule-obsessed bureaucracy, you know, not not with its eye on the ultimate goal. But as often as not, and these stories are much less often told, you know, whether at the city level, the state level, or the federal level, there are some amazing people yeah. working in government, just passionate about public service and, like, sacrificing tons of income to do work, mission-oriented work that's... Um, meaningful to them and meaningful to society and thank god yeah. they're there and we don't want to drive them out well it, it strikes me there's a there's a thread going some of these books which is that you know turning up the power of the microscope and paying attention to the people in in organizations and in different contexts uh as as those who can really make or break the fortunes uh of uh our, our, all our larger fortunes is is uh probably a an important um uh, kind of way of looking at things. Uh, so you said you had one more book from yep. the archives? Uh, from the archives. So this was, um, I was reminded of this book uh, during the several days of remembrance of George H.W. Bush um, because it was from this book that I gained an indelible portrait of, of him as a person and as a president. And the book is called um, What It Takes. And it's written by Richard Ben Kramer, at one time a an Inquirer reporter. I don't know if you overlapped with him. Um, Legendary in the Inquirer newsroom. Yeah. I uh, have a little quick anecdote okay. about that when you're, when you're uh, done. But the book is about the 1988 uh, presidential campaign, which may seem like a million years ago, but it's still relevant today, uh, featuring uh, George Bush, uh, Pat Buchanan, uh, Gary Hart, Michael Dukakis, uh, ultimately the, the, the candidate, uh, and Joe Biden. And uh, it is, again, a 1,200-page book, so settle in. Mm -hmm. But it's these, like, masterful uh, uh, character studies of each of these individuals. Uh, just as a, for instance, uh, it left me with a sense of George H.W. Bush as, a, as an habitual uh, letter writer. Uh, that he uh, – and, and this is partly how he built this global network of friends, not, not – he wasn't networking. He, these were all friends, you know, uh, that he wrote them notes. He would wrote after an event or uh, just prompted by some uh, thought that came to him. He'd wrote, write a handwritten written note. And it felt like he wrote five or ten of those a day. Um, it, Joe Biden uh, is also featured in there. And there's an indelible portrait of, of Joey uh, that if he resurfaces uh, for the 2020 race, it's, it's worth uh, taking um, a look at. The book, What It Takes, uh, is also a, a, a terrific story to help you understand what uh, the, the bubble of the presidential campaign is all about. And again, as a, as a run-up to 2020, might be worth taking a look. One interesting thing about the book, when it came out, it was panned. Uh, people thought it was too long. It was written as sort of Tom Wolfe, you know, why use one sentence when you can use six? Uh, and... Uh, Richard Ben Kramer, I think, was crushed because he spent so much time on this book. Well, lo and behold, 
it's resurfaced and it is now regarded, I think, almost universally as the quintessential book on presidential campaigns and, and also as a character study of these candidates. So highly recommended from the back catalog. Sadly, uh, Ben Kramer died a few years ago. Also wrote a great book about Joe DiMaggio, if you're mm. a baseball fan. So what's your anecdote well, about yeah, him? Well, yeah, I was just – among uh, political journalists, that book and Richard Ben Kramer are both revered. Um, yeah, he was a star reporter, won a Pulitzer with the Inquirer, but he had moved on. In fact, he was in the midst of writing What It Takes when I joined the Inquirer in uh, 89. Um, but he lived on for future generations because another legendary political journalist, Jim Naughton, who was the managing editor of the Inquirer at the time, loved Richard Ben Kramer. So whenever a new crop of reporters would come through, Jim would give up, get up and give a speech to them about what the Inquirer was about. And he would read a lead from a Richard Ben Kramer story. It was about Bobby Sands, an IRA fighter who died on a hunger strike. And the lead was, it was counted up, it was one sentence that wandered, um, I shouldn't say wandered, moved through about seven subordinate clauses with perfect grammar <laughs> and incredible imagery for 120 words. <laughs> And Jim would read this to a crop of new reporters who I would then have to turn around and edit. And I'd say, why does he do this? <laughs> they are not Richard Ben Kramer. He's an extraordinary mercurial talent. These kids, we don't know what they can do. Subject, verb, <laughs> yeah, object, Subject, get verb, out. object. You know, give me some inverted pyramid before you start reading the Richard Ben Kramer. But it is a That's fabulous great. book, and he was brilliant. Just yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Great. Okay, so to recap, my picks are uh, Leadership in Turbulent Times, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis, and What It Takes, uh, a throwback by Richard Ben Kramer. And Chris, yours? Mine were Grant by Ron Chernow and On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Those are all the books that you need to read in 2019 if you haven't already. And what one novel, too. What was the name of that novel? Oh, it's called Ordinary Girls. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, coming out, actually, in audiobook form, I just learned, in the spring of 2019, my daughter Blair, her second young adult novel. So that's the other essential uh, 2019. All right. So your stocking is now full. In fact, your stocking will be sagging down to the floor if you try to stuff all these weighty tomes into them. <laughs> that's right. Uh, anything final you want to say about Draw the Lines, just as a... Uh, through line? Yeah, just that uh, Draw the Lines, our uh, citizen mapping contest, uh, wrapped up its first round um, just recently. And uh, more than uh, 1,300 people took part. More than 2,600 maps were started. Um, the mappers were happy enough with a little more than 300 of them to enter them in the contest. So we'll awesome. be we'll having new, more news about that in the new year. That's right. Well, that about wraps things up here at 20 by 70. Uh, thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to our uh, friends out here at Kelly Writers House on the Penn campus and Zach Gardner, to our engineer, Joel Patterson, to my friend, colleague, and co-conspirator, Chris Satulo. And my final comment is uh, Merry Christmas to you, David. And, and to you as well, Chris. It's been a pleasure to work with you. And to all of you uh, out there, um, spend some time with your family. Have a good conversation. Uh, over uh, uh, the holidays. Push yourself away from the social media table, and we'll see you in 2019. To the hill.
Special Boone County 